Would you say a prayer with me before we dig into the Scripture this morning? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're grateful. As we've, we've sung about this morning, we know that whenever we're gathered together, you're, you are here. Your Spirit is here with us. And we come from all kinds of different places, backgrounds, all sorts of different experiences this last week. And we pray, God, that in these few moments, you would help us to uh, be here together with you, uh, listening to things you may want to tell us uh, as individuals, as a group. We're here to listen and be shaped by you, your love for us, your challenge for us, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, uh, and to be sent back out into the world that you love as we leave here today. Uh, so give us hearts that are open to whatever you want to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, confession. Let me start with a confession. Sometimes you say things to me, any of you, uh, and it goes like this, right? Have you been to this restaurant or this coffee shop? Or have you read this book? Or have you seen this particular TV show, Netflix show, you know? And my confession is that a lot of the time, without even really thinking about it, I just go, yep. <laughs> Have you seen, yep, yep, I've seen that. I've been there. I know what you're talking about. And as I've, as I've just kind of been noticing this about myself, like, why, why? I mean, I'm straight up lying to some people. They're asking me questions about whether or not I know something, and I just, without even thinking, yeah, of course, I know everything. I'm a pastor. I know everything. Uh, and as, you know, as I've been thinking about it this week, I have to be honest and say, so I've got this habit, and the habit is telling me that it's more important for me to appear to you all like I'm smart, like I'm with it, like I know what's happening and all the things, than to be real honest and just say, no, I, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what you're talking about. But go ahead. I mean, tell me about it. Go ahead. But I have no idea what you're saying. I have taught people all over the country. I have traveled all over the country in the last few years and done trainings, a lot of which has been based on Mill City's experience about how to engage neighbors, how to engage neighborhoods. It's one of the strengths of our church. I have taught people all over and given them assignments to say, hey, this summer, you're going to spend your time finding out who actually lives around you. Learn the names of your neighbors. Find out what they care about. Find out what their kids are like. Find out what they're involved in. Share your life with them. Let them get to know you. And I've encouraged hundreds and thousands of people to do this. But there are days, okay, confession, there are days when I hide in my basement and watch basketball rather than go outside and talk to my neighbors who I can see are outside and want to talk to people. I don't always do what I teach other people to do. And I sometimes try to make it appear like I know more than I actually know. Can anybody relate to those things? Today, what I want to talk about, I know it's going to be a little difficult, I want to talk about how Jesus meets us in our hypocrisy. And the reason I want to talk about today is that we're in a series where we've been talking about how Jesus meets us in our everyday spaces and the ordinary chaos of our, of our daily lives. And last week, Stephanie did a great job of talking about how Jesus meets us in our thought life. If you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. But today, I want us to talk about how Jesus meets us individually and together in the spaces of our life where we are acting in a hypocritical way. 
That's not a conversation we enter a lot, and maybe you immediately would like to run out the back of this auditorium. I understand that feeling. But let's, let's just see what Jesus says about it and what we might be able to learn as a group today. So the story we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 11, if you have a Bible and you want to pull that out. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on the screen for you. It's another story about when Jesus gets invited over to eat at someone's house. He's speaking, he's teaching, and someone says, hey, come and, come and eat at my house, which happens all the time in Scripture. And we've been looking at some of those stories the last few weeks. And in this particular story, he gets invited over by a Pharisee who's a, a religious leader. And the Pharisees, sometimes if you've been in church circles before, you think of Pharisee and swear word as kind of a, a close connection. But that, that's not necessarily true. They're just a group that has been deeply committed to interpreting Torah uh, you know, the way that they understood the Bible at that time, and interpreting it and applying it to the everyday lives and practices of all the people. That's kind of their, their focus, is the everyday practice of Torah. And so this Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house, and then I think immediately wishes he had not invited Jesus over to his house. And you'll see what I mean here in a second. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. The expectation is that you would ceremonially wash your hands to uh, embody the fact that you are honoring the purity laws, that you wouldn't eat unclean things, that you wouldn't eat with unclean hands, and that was a normal practice. For Pharisees, Jesus doesn't do that when he goes over to this Pharisee's house, and that's intentionally poking the bear by Jesus. He knows that's the expectation. He decides, I'm not going to do that and see what kind of prov provoking conversation I can create. All right, so what, right before I read this, like you've got to imagine Jesus sitting at this table with a group of people, some of whom are Pharisees, and just try to imagine any dinner guest you've ever had saying this kind of stuff at your house, okay? Here's what Jesus says. Then the Lord said to the Pharisee, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. At that point is where the regret for the dinner invitation has started to kick in, I think. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, without leaving the former undone. You should have done both of these things, is what he's saying. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. What do you think? Good dinner guests, not a good dinner guest. Jesus doesn't hold back with these Pharisees. He needs them to understand that the way that they're teaching people, these are people who have responsibility for teaching. Uh, 
Uh, the way that they are teaching people to engage with God is actually leading them away from God. And not only that, but the things that they are asking other people to do, they are not themselves willing to do. And so Jesus points out the following problems with the way that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are leading the folks. You know, the first problem is that the outside of their life doesn't match the inside of their life. You know, uh, he says they're full of greed and wickedness in their, in their hearts. Uh, and instead of dealing with that problem, the greed and the wickedness, they're focusing on making sure they appear clean to other people. That they appear like they're following the laws and doing the right things, even though internally that's, their hearts are not connected to, to God in the way that God wants. The second problem is that he says you give a tenth of your crop, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Or you follow the religious rules, but you don't care about God or the things that God cares about. A third problem is that you, you love this recognition and respect you get from being religious more than you actually love God. Those are hard, aren't they? They're hard to hear out loud. Your outside doesn't match your inside. You're neglecting the things that God cares about and, and attending to other things. You, you're worried about how people think of you more than you are actually loving God and loving other people. Several different studies in the last 10 or 15 years have shown that across several different generations in the United States right now, the biggest barrier or one of the biggest barriers to people who are outside of Christian faith or outside of the church to entering into or engaging with Christian faith is that they think Christians are hypocrites. Anybody heard that before? So in this uh, 2016 study by the Barna Group, research group, I have a snapshot for you on the screen there. Christians are hypocrites was the biggest barrier for three of the generational groups, the millennials, the Gen Xers, and the boomers. More than six or seven other options for reasons why they don't engage with Christian faith. Christians are hypocrites was the number one option. The Generation Z group, that's the group that's born from 2001 to now, basically. Uh, That wasn't their highest group. I don't know how they even have fully formed ideas yet, but they're not, they haven't experienced it maybe. But the older generations, those who are all fully in adulthood, all of them, their top reason for not engaging with Christian faith is that they think Christians are hypocrites. Now for most of you, that's not new information, right? We've been hearing this for a while, that people think Christians are hypocrites. So my question for you this morning is, what do we do about that? How do we respond to the fact that the biggest barrier for lots of people from engaging with Christian faith is that they think we're hypocrites. Let me offer some, some op- options for us, okay? Different ways we could respond. Here's, here's one. We could say that people saying Christians are hypocrites doesn't mean that Christians are actually hypocrites, right? They might be wrong about that. Maybe we're actually full of integrity and they just don't know it. We could argue about what people mean by hypocrites, right? What do you think a hypocrite is? Maybe that's not what I think it is. 
We could get real defensive and say we're not really hypocrites and people outside the church are hypocrites and they don't know what they're talking about. Or you're going to be able to tell by my tone which one of these I think we should pursue. We could do some self-examination and ask Jesus to point out areas in our lives where we might not be living with integrity. Now, what, what do we mean when we say hypocrisy? Let me tell you what I think it means quick, and then let's talk some more about how Jesus invites us to address it. Hypocrisy, in one sense, is just saying that you care deeply about something uh, or believe something, but not living according to that belief. Like You might say that this is really important to you, but nothing in your life has, shows that you're actually doing anything about it. Right? That's one common understanding of hypocrisy. Another one that's important in the biblical text when people are accused of hypocrisy is that you're using your authority or your influence uh, to teach people or, or shape their opinion in a way uh, to do things that you're not also willing to do yourself, to lead them away from the thing that uh, you're actually doing. Those are two different ideas for how we can understand hypocrisy. So we need to talk about, first, why, why is hypocrisy such a big deal right now? Why is that the number one response for so many people? And to get at that, I want to take just a couple of minutes, like four or five minutes, and do something that Pastor Stephanie has developed over the last uh, year or two uh, that we call, in the middle of sermons, Seminary for Everyone. So if you're new here, we try to take four or five minutes once in a while and say, okay, here's what they would talk about at pastor school if we were going to talk about this particular topic in these spaces. Because we know that a lot of you uh, can engage with all of this stuff, and we don't think it should be limited to pastor school. So we kind of bracket it out, and if you hate it, it only lasts like four or five minutes, and then we'll get back to the regular conversation, okay? So here's our little Seminary for, less, uh, seminary for Everyone lesson for the day. Uh, I think hypocrisy is the number one response, in part because we're in an, an age, a cultural age right now, that philosophers call the age of authenticity. Has anybody ever heard of the age of authenticity? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, so let me just explain it briefly. We live in this age of authenticity, which is a change from the previous age that most philosophers call the age of duty. So if you think back before the 1960s in the, in the United States history, so early 20th century, most of people's life perspective was shaped by their understanding of their duty to some person, some family, some institution. So they, they ordered their life and they valued things in life according to fulfilling their sense of responsibility to their country, to their employer, to their family, to their friends, to their neighbors, to their faith, etc. And one of the highest values for that age, the, the age that we now call the greatest generation, was to fulfill one's responsibility to those groups. And so you would do things, you would, you would act sacrificially if it meant that you were fulfilling your duty to, uh, to the group that you were part of, whatever that group might be. Now, this is both positive and negative. People did very heroic things in the name of fulfilling their duty. And they also did incredibly negative things where they were super loyal to institutions, countries, movements that ended up being hugely damaging and evil in the world that weren't questioned because people were being loyal or being dutiful. So it had both positives and negatives to it. In the 1960s, there's this shift to a way of thinking that we're now calling the age of authenticity. And it had already been popular in 
uh, philosophical circles and cultural circles and artists and other places before this. But in the 60s, it went mainstream in the United States culture. And scholars talk about this as the age of authenticity because instead of people ordering their lives according to duty to institutions or family or whatever, they now started to think of their own authentic journey as the primary focus of life. Okay? So here's, here's one of these kind of fancy philosophical quotes that describes authenticity in the age of authenticity. It's from a guy named Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian scholar. He says, by authenticity, I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century. So fancy thinkers and philosophers from a while back, a couple hundred years ago. That each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. Does that sound familiar to you? And that it's important to find and live out one's own, one owns humanity, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Okay, so in the age of authenticity, what Taylor's trying to say is the most important thing in life is to become your true self. Anybody heard that before? The most important thing in life isn't responsibility to some group or organization or family or country or faith. It is to become your true self. And you shouldn't let anything outside of, uh, of you impose restrictions on you. That's one of the values of the age of authenticity. Don't let other people tell you how to be you. You just learn to be yourself. Don't let society, not your parents, not your grandparents, not the politicians or religious leaders, you have to find your own path to your own authentic self. I'm just describing the values of the age of authenticity now. In the age of authenticity, the worst thing you can do is be inauthentic. The worst thing you can do is to be hypocritical, is another way to look at that, right? In the age of authenticity, it's better to be bad but authentic than to be good but phony. This is part of the description of some of the value set that some of us are, are living in, and we start to recognize it. Once you start um, kind of thinking about this, you start to see this value of authenticity everywhere. Everywhere. So I'm wandering through the Minneapolis airport a couple of weeks ago, and I find this picture on the wall, huge on the wall, in the new remodeled Minneapolis airport. Can you see what it says? Minneapolis, St. Paul, authentic in the middle. Why does it say authentic in the middle? It says authentic in the middle because we are living in this philosophical age where the most important thing is to be authentic. So, here's why hypocrisy is such a huge deal to the millennials, to the Xers, to the boomers. Because we live in the age where hypocrisy is the greatest sin. Better to be bad and authentic than good and phony. End of Seminary for Everyone lesson, okay? So, what can we do about this? What, how do we respond to this? What is the remedy for hypocrisy that Jesus offers to us? 
Jesus gives several suggestions in this dinner conversation that he's having. I don't know if it's a conversation so much as a speech that he's making to these folks. He says to them particularly two things, okay? First he says, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. When he's addressing the hand washing problem, Jesus suggests that if we focus on what God says is most important, to care for those who are less fortunate, to include people who have been excluded, then it will help change us as people. We will live congruent lives. And instead of figuring out ways to make it look like we're doing great and we're living the way that God wants us to do, we just will be clean because our hearts will be aligned with what God cares the most about. And we will be without blame and we will be investing in people the way that God invites us to. The second remedy that Jesus gives to us in this passage is that he says, give a portion of your resources to God. They were giving a tenth of their resources to the temple. He says, keep doing that. You should do that. And you should pay attention to justice and the love of God. Do both of those things, Jesus says. And so he tells the Pharisees to, to continue to give those resources and to focus on specifically, how are people being treated? Are people being treated fairly? Are people being invited into the kingdom of God? Are people being honored as having the image of God in them all the time? Are there structures that are in place that cause people to be oppressed or to be weighed down? Are you making laws, teachers of the law, that actually just weigh people down and don't create freedom and, and forgiveness in their life and their relationship with God? He says, don't use the fact that you're giving 10% of your resources as religious camouflage for selfishness. Don't just give it and say, I'm doing these rules and then neglect the things that are really core, like fighting for justice and loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus doesn't say this last piece in the passage that we're in today, but as we think about hypocrisy in the 21st century, one of the things that is uh, our approach as Christians, as people of faith, is to just own our hypocrisy. Okay? We can, we can, um, we can embrace authenticity, ironically, by just owning the places where we're living hypocritically. Jesus doesn't say pretend like you have no hypocrisy. He knows we all have hypocrisy in our lives. And the Christian faith, instead of pretending we don't have that or ignoring it or not talking about it, Jesus invites us to talk about the areas that are incongruent in our life, confess those areas, receive God's forgiveness for us, and ask God to help us change it. Shouldn't Christians be the people who are the most willing to talk about hypocrisy? Shouldn't we be the first to raise our hands and say, you know what, there are some things that I know I value that I'm not doing. And I want to see that change in my life. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that with other people, and maybe I have some reasons why those things don't line up. And I know as a Christian person, I can't just will myself to be a person of integrity all the time. I have to focus on inviting God into every area of my life so he continually changes me to be a person who loves the thing that God, God loves and tells people about the things that God loves. That's who I want to be. But we ought not to feel shame or guilt about those areas of hypocrisy, but we certainly can't hide those areas of hypocrisy. 
We've got to get them out. We've got to create a community amongst each other where we can say, yeah, I talk about myself like I'm real smart, and I'm not always that smart. I tell everyone to love my neighbors, but I don't always love my neighbors. And the list goes on, right? A grace-based approach to hypocrisy says, Jesus knows this is true. We need to talk about it. We need to confess it. We need to invite him into it and allow the Holy Spirit to keep making us as a group and as individuals more people of integrity. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's one quick thing about this age of authenticity that has a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of downside to it because life's not really about us and our own journey, is it? It's about God and God inviting us to be in part of God's family and being part of what God is doing. That's what the gospel says. But there's a lot of opportunity for us to say, okay, if we're living in the age of authenticity, we could complain about it and say we could wish we could go back to the age of duty. Or what we could do is just say, hey, in this particular season, in this part of the world that we live in, people value being authentic. So what does it mean to step into that as a Christian? In this area, it means owning up to the areas where you know you have some hypocrisy in your life and inviting God to make you a person of integrity. And if we do that consistently, if we do that not only with each other, but with people outside of the Christian faith, that number of Christians or hypocrites is going to go down because people are going to say, "Yeah, no, these people have problems just like everyone else, but at least they're willing to admit it. And at least they have a way of engaging it. And at least their faith speaks to that. And there's a way for them to change. We need to be honest about those places in our lives with each other. And so I want to close the service today. I'll invite the band to come back up. I want to close the service today with this practice that we've just been starting to do together. Uh, it's, a, it's a confession that we say out loud. And I'll give you like a couple of minutes just to reflect on what has been said this morning. And see if there are any of these spaces where you know maybe the inside of your life and the outside of your life doesn't match up. Maybe there's some ways that you're looking good on the outside, but things are not going well on the inside. Maybe there's some areas where you're following the rules, but you know your heart's not in the place that God wants you to be. If so, you're, you're, among, you're among family in that. We're all there in some way, shape, or form. And the way that we respond as Christians is to confess and ask God. So I'm going to give you a minute or two of silence just to kind of reflect on where God might be speaking to you this morning. And then when we're done with that, we will read this confession together before we take communion. So just take a minute to reflect on where God might be speaking to you this morning. Roland, can you put that confession up on the screen?
All right. So, Mill City, we're not super good at this yet, but we're getting better. So, we'll just sort of dive in and try to say this out loud together as a confession, if you feel comfortable. You, you don't have to. All right? Let's begin. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Here's the good news. Let me invite the communion servers to come forward. The good news is that whenever we confess our sins, Jesus has promised to us that we will receive God's forgiveness. And so we come in and we lay those things before Christ and he, uh, because of what he's accomplished on the cross through his death and resurrection, can say, be forgiven. Be free from that. Don't let it define you. And so when you come forward for communion today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate in this. We celebrate with gluten-free bread and we dip it in juice to remind us that this is Jesus' body given for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that no matter what you have done in your life, no matter where you are today, no matter what sort of hypocrisy you might know is, a, is a, um, present in your life, Jesus offers you forgiveness. God offers you grace. God offers you mercy. That, those things don't have to define you. So if you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to come and participate at this table because Jesus has died and come back to life for you. And so when you're ready, uh, as this next song is playing, you come forward, choose one of these lines, pick a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There'll be people available to pray for you along the walls if you'd like to stop and just say, could you say a simple prayer for me? If you have a particular thing you want them to pray for, you can ask them. Uh, this is our way of living into this reality of God's forgiveness and grace towards us. So you're welcome to participate as soon as you're ready.